This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Charlotte Higgins, um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival this morning to this event that I'm terribly excited about with Helen MacDonald. Um, the author of this wonderful book, actually you've got the correct cover. With the beautiful cover. With the beautiful cover. H is for Hawk. Now, many, many months ago, Helen's uh, publisher sent me a copy of, um, an early proof copy of this book. And I lay in the bath reading it and thought, wow, you know, this is really an astonishing book. The sentences sort of claw themselves out of the page with this extraordinary energy. And it's an extraordinarily moving book. And I suppose it has, um, for me, I suppose one, there are lots of ways of describing the book. I think it's, it's, going to, it's going to be a book that's going to have a very long life and um, has already been hailed actually as a classic and, and uh, compared with Jared Manley Hopkins and, and Ted Hughes. I mean, this is a book that's been extraordinarily well received. It wasn't just me. Um, but I suppose for me, it, it seemed to have at its centre three crucial relationships. One was between Helen and, and the shade of her father who had recently died. It's a book in many ways about the kind of appalling, wild grief that Helen suffers as a result of this loss. It's a book that's centrally about Helen's relationship with the goshawk that she trains after the death of her father and in some ways seems to embody her grief and the sense of loss of her father. And the third central relationship is between Helen and the shade of T.H. White, the author of The Sword and the Stone, and a very curious and strange man who also trained a goshawk and wrote a memoir about it. But the book, in some ways, also has this extraordinary kind of mythical quality. It's as if Helen descends, in a way. It's a kind of what the Greeks would call a catabasis, a descent into the underworld, and her eventual re-emergence <laughs> into the world of of humans, as it were, having been very much in this extraordinary wild world of the hawk. It's an absolutely wonderful book, and please join me in welcoming Helen for what I know is going to be a wonderful hour. Thank you, Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. And I love the sense that the underworld is, in fact, a, a series of small farm fields near Cambridge. That seems really <laughs> apt somehow. <laughs> Um, so just a tiny housekeeping. We're going to chat, and at certain points in our chat, I'm going to hope, I'm going to tempt Helen into reading, because you have to hear her read, and you have to hear the, the, her extraordinary writing as, as, as a wonder. Um, and um, towards the end, we will leave the, the field open for you to involve yourselves in our conversation as well and to ask as many questions as you want within the time frame allowable. Um, but just for now, if you could make sure your phones are set to silent, that would be absolutely wonderful. And of course, at the end of the event, I will personally be frog-marching each and every one of you out to the uh, bookshop, which is very conveniently at hand on the right, just outside the tent, because if you haven't read and bought this book, you simply must. Goodness. Thank you, Sean. So, um, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be certainly signing, so uh, do, do feel free to ask me so to dedicate things. Helen, you, I, I guess it would be good to start at the beginning and, and talk about your relationship with hawks and falcons and birds of prey because as a little girl you were already how did you were obsessed right I how was did a this nightmare child I don't know how my parents put up with me I'm, I'm seriously I was obsessed with hawks to the point where you know other children put um, sort of rock stars and ponies and things on their wall and I had sort of wall-to-wall -wall pictures of hawks and I, I, I educated myself very early on I was a horribly precocious reader uh, by reading 19th century falconry books which was hilarious because I, I just felt that I was one of these one of these men. You know, I was like these men, like these wonderfully tweedy kind of old Etonians. And when I first went out hawking, I was aged, aged about twelve, and had this sort of dim apprehension that I might not actually be like these people. That they might be, they might have thought, think of me as a little bit of a curiosity. But I basically, yes, I was I was obsessed to the point that when I was about six, I remember reading about the Egyptian god Horus and decided that that was probably my god. And I remember sort of doing this terrible thing in, in school assemblies where I'd sort of, where everyone else was saying, our oh, Father, which art in heaven, and I'd say, oh, you know, our oh, Horus, um, which I knew was sort of deeply wrong, but sort of quite thrilling. 
Um, and then later when I discovered there was such a thing as falconry, I decided that was what I was going to be, a falconer when I grew up. And my parents were deeply, deeply loving and never told me to shut up and do something more normal. So, you know, I blessed them for that. Um, and well, I had, have I had any a, idea where it sprang from? I mean, do you remember the first hawk or falcon moment? I don't. Um, it was so far back. Uh, for a while in the 1990s, I worked in the Gulf states uh, breeding falcons um, to try and get some pressure off the wild populations. A lot of wild falcons are used by Gulf Arab falconers. And I was speaking to a Bedouin falconer there, and he just said, well, you know, God chooses who's a falconer, and obviously God chose you as a bit of a joke, really. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but that's how it seems. It's often, if you speak to many hawk-obsessed people, it, it happens so early and uh, that, that you you don't really remember when. And I, I was once uh, collared by a psychoanalyst at a party who said, how old were you when you got interested in hawks? And I said, I don't know, I must have been about four or five. And he looked at me for a while, you know, sort of looked back at me and said, that's terribly early. And then walked off. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know what that meant. So, I'm, you know, it's possibly some pathological thing. But there is a sense in which, you know, hawks and falcons have been deeply sort of involved in, in, in sort of the, the, the mythico-religious uh, strands in so many cultures for so many centuries that it's almost as if they kind of you just sort of pop up, really. They, you know, they, they mean a lot more than just, just their feathery selves. So partly maybe that, yeah. And there's, obviously there are dozens and hundreds of, of species of falcons and hawks, um, many of which can be trained and so forth, and, and all of them you describe beautifully have different characteristics from the merlin that can, the tiny merlin that can be trained in a couple of days to the goshawk, which is a scary, bad-tempered, kind yes. of tricky creature. Very so could you describe the, the, the sort of the, the idea of the goshawk or the, the yes. character of the goshawk? Yes, I, I never ever wanted to train one. And I, I flew mainly falcons, which are rather biddable, lovely creatures, a little bit like sort of friendly Labradors. Um, and goshawks are a little bit more like cats, no, more like leopards or something worse than a leopard. They're incredibly highly strung, incredibly violent, ferocious, uh, psychopathic birds, really, and I never really wanted ever to, to have anything to do with them. I remember I, I talk about in the book about uh, meeting a chap once who said to me, do you know, you fly falcons? And I said, yes. And he said, I fly goshawks. You know where you are with a goshawk. And I said, great, you know. Uh, and he said, do you know what you do if your goshawk isn't behaving very well or isn't, you know? And I said, no. And he said, you just get it to kill things. That sorts them out. Murder sorts them out. And I sort of backed away, you know. And I, you know, even then I thought, no, no way am I going to train a goshawk. But then my father died and I, I started to dream of goshawks. You know, it was a, a suddenly it became a bird that I, I wanted to, ha I wanted to, I needed to. It was a very unconscious uh, decision taken sort of below the level of, of any kind of logical thought that I really wanted to train a goshawk. And you, you cast back, because in, in the book you described the first time you'd ever encountered a goshawk when you were 12. They're like enormous sparrowhawks, but much more ferocious, right? Mm, yeah. You cast back to the first time you'd ever seen a goshawk, and it was a very sort of violent and deathly act, and so it made me wonder, I mean, you imply it, that mm. there was some intrinsic connection between a kind of rather hideous and sudden death, in fact, and, and the idea of the goshawk, and so... It, kind of entered you as an idea after the It did, it was the first time, the first yeah. time I'd, I was about, I think I was about 12 and I, I went out to see some chaps fly goshawks and one of them caught a pheasant and I didn't really know how to feel about that. I knew that that's what was probably going to happen because that's what people did. They flew goshawks and they caught pheasants and then you eat the pheasant and that's how it is. But I, 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 I was, I was a very troubled after that. But it, oddly enough it wasn't that first sight of death that really impressed me I think. It was the sense, it was the fact that Quite a few of these goshawks that were being flown suddenly decided to completely ignore their handlers and sit up trees and just stare into nothing. And which is one of those things that goshawks do, they're very good at this. Um, and they're often described as sulky, uh, uh, which has all sorts of gender-related issues. We'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, and I just suddenly saw these birds that had gone into another world, and it wasn't the human world. It was as if they couldn't see us at all, and their handlers had to wait under the trees for the hawks to suddenly sort of gently come back into this world and come back down to them. And I think partly what impressed me about goshawks was that sense that they could go into this other place. And when my father died, that was kind of the place I wanted to, to be, yeah. So you felt you had to find a goshawk, and you did. And I wonder whether you could read us that lovely passage where you first Certainly, yes. encountered I, I had this extraordinary thing. I was pacing up and down um, Stranraer Pier, uh, Quayside, uh, one morning with 800 pounds in my pocket. And it was like a sort of drugs deal. It was all very odd. 
um, waiting for a man to come on the ferry with a, all, all the birds are captive bred that we use in falconry these days, and this was a captive bred young goshawk. The box is on the quayside and he's, t he's untying the keys. We have to check the ring number on the bird's leg against the government forms to make sure it's the right bird, so this is what happens. Another hinge untied, concentration, infinite caution, daylight irrigating the box, scratching talons, another thump, and another thump. The air turned syrupy, slow, flecked with dust, the last few seconds before a battle. And with the last bow pulled free, he reached inside, and amidst a whirring, chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering, and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box. And in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us, and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She's a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a griffin from the pages of an illuminated bestiary, something bright and distant like gold falling through water, a broken marionette of wings, legs, and light-splashed feathers. She's wearing jesses and the man holds them. For one awful long moment, she's hanging head downward, wings open like a turkey in a butcher's shop, only her head is turned right way up and she's seeing more than she has ever seen before in her whole short life. Her world was an aviary, no larger than a living room. Then it was a box. But now it's this and she can see everything. The point source glitter on the waves, a, di a diving cormorant a hundred yards out, pigment flakes under wax on the lines of parked cars, far hills and the heather on them, and miles and miles of sky where the sun spreads on dust and water and illegible things moving in it that are white scraps of gulls. Everything is startling and new stamped on her entirely astonished brain. See what I mean? <laughs> That's quite a melodramatic bit. It's not all like that. I was on Woman's Hour a while ago and Jenny Murray got her pages stuck together. And on air she said to me, it's Mabel. It's the ghost of your goshawk. And I'm thinking, this is really Jacobean, isn't it? You're blaming the ghost of my dead goshawk. She, she died a few years ago at last. She died last year. Um, but it's very baffling. So maybe it's the ghost of Mabel. Maybe it is. <laughs> exactly. Rather than the ghost of Jenny Murray. Oh, it's very much one of those. Very much one of those. Sorry. It was nervous tension. Um, bless Jenny Murray. Um, am I working at, does it matter? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Good. So, I apologise for that. Um, so, Helen, you, you get to your hawk and then you have to sort of almost disappear into a very, very strange world of concentration, of solitude, of being with this hawk and in some ways becoming a little bit like this hawk. Mm. Um, could you... I mean, I, I'd like to ask you to read again from, from, um, from the, there's a sort of lovely passage where you, you're talking about being with the hawk, um, but perhaps you could talk a bit about mm. that process as well. It's an incredibly yeah. ancient process, so people have been training hawks like this for about 4,000 years. And all hawks, although they've, they've been kept by people for that long, have never been domesticated, so they're still as wild as anything when you, when you pick one, and a fresh hawk as it's known in the, in the trade, a, a fresh hawk is very, very wild. And you have to very, very slowly and gently and carefully persuade the hawk that you're not a monster. And you, it's a sort of strange process, it's quite a mythical one. You start off in a very dark room with the hawk on your fist, like this. You know, I'm doing an impression of a hawk now. Staring at you, um, and you, 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 you can't punish hawks or, or shout at them or, or do anything that, you know, you have to just uh, reassure them and offer them gifts of, of delicious raw steak in your hand, and that's sort of the first step in the process. So it starts off in darkened rooms, and then as the, the sort of days and weeks go by, you sort of, um, the hawk starts to jump to your fist for food and then fly to it, and then you take it for walks outside. We're going to talk about that a bit later, but it is, it is really strange. So what I was doing, you know, my father had died, and I basically fled from the world of humans to lock myself in a small darkened room with a hawk. Um, I don't recommend this as a way of dealing with grief generally, can I just say. Um, so, but the first moments with a hawk on the fist are the most extraordinary, tense, and thrilling, and stressful moments I, I ever experience, you know, always, so, yeah. Will you read for us? I shall. <laughs> so this is, um, the hawk's on the fist for the first time, she's staring at me. I can feel how frightened she is, and I hate that. Um, 
what I have to do is concentrate very hard on this process of not being there. Um, and this is from the book. Here's one thing I know from years of training hawks. One of the things you must learn to do is become invisible. It's what you do when a fresh hawk sits on your left fist with food beneath her feet in a state of savage defensive fear. You want the hawk to eat the food you hold. It's the first step in reclaiming her that will end you with you being hunting partners. But the space between the fear and the food is a vast, vast gulf, and you have to cross it together. I thought once that you did it by being infinitely patient, but no, it's more than that. You must become invisible. Imagine, you're in a darkened room, you're sitting with a hawk on your fist. She is as, as immobile, as tense and sprung as a catapult at full stretch. Underneath her huge thorny feet is a chunk of raw steak. You're trying to get her to look at the steak, not at you, because you know that you haven't looked, that her eyes are fixed in horror at your profile. All you can hear is the wet click, click, click of her blinking. To cross this space between fear and food and somehow make possible an eventual concord between your currently paralyzed immobile minds, you need very urgently not to be there. You empty your mind and become very still. You think of exactly nothing at all. The hawk becomes a strange, hollow concept, as flat as a snapshot or a schematic drawing, but at the same time as pertinent to your future as an angry high court judge. Your gloved fist squeezes the meter fraction, and you feel the tiny imbalance of weight, and you see out of the very corner of your eye that she's looked down at it. And so, remaining invisible, you make the food the only thing in the room apart from the hawk. You're not there at all. And what you hope is that she'll start eating, and you can very, very slowly make yourself visible. Even if you don't move a muscle and just relax into a more normal frame of mind, the hawk knows. It's extraordinary. It takes a long time to be yourself in the presence of a new hawk. Thank you. So I want to think a, a little bit about this, this other character in the book, who is T.H. White, who's, a, who's, a, who's your sort of... If you're Dante, he's your Virgil, but he's a very, through this kind of strange underworld. But he's, a, he's, an extra, he's not he's a necessarily a horrible man. man. Horrible, so not, horrible man. Not, he's not as nice as Virgil. Um, <laughs> uh, so tell, tell us about him. Because what, what he, he wrote this extraordinary book about training his hawk, and mm. in a way, it's everything that you wouldn't ever want to yes, do. Yes, when, when I was small, I read his book, and I, I was furious with it. Uh, I didn't understand why he wrote it. You know, when you're small, everything's about, everything's about certainties, and you think that grown-ups write books to tell people what to do. And here was a book by a man who didn't really know how to train a hawk, and it was all about how he did. Obviously, he didn't know how to train a hawk, and he admitted this in the book, and it's a great, tragic work. Um, and I think maybe part of the reason that I flew to the goshawk after Dad died is because I sort of internalised what was going on in, in his book, which was, you know, he was a, he was a deeply, deeply broken man. He... Um, he grew up in, uh, in India with incredibly violent, unhappy parents who constantly threatened to kill each other and him. He then got sent to prep school where he was beaten horribly and, and, and abused. Um, and he was gay as well, and obviously that was very problematic at the time. So he basically was struggling all his life, and he drank an awful lot too. And he was a school teacher at Stowe in Buckinghamshire. And he just couldn't cope anymore. He decided he just didn't want any of this world. He couldn't maintain this fiction of this of the sort of correct person he should be. So he ran to the woods. He, he rented a house in, in Stowe Woods and decided he was going to train a, a goshawk. And that would solve everything, you know. Because goshawks were for him all the things he wanted to be but couldn't. They were ferocious. They were... He sort of saw them as gay as well in a kind of very odd way. There are parts in his, in his books, where he, in his diaries, where he sort of suggests that his goshawk isn't, isn't particularly straight, which is very odd. Um, and he locks himself away with this goshawk to sort of battle his demons. And it's a terrible tragedy because he sees himself in the hawk. And what he's trying to do is battle himself in, in, the, in the form of the hawk. And it's one of the great tragedies, I think, that book. And it's, and it's an extraordinary one. So, and partly I wanted to sort of, even when I was young, wanted to write a book about training a hawk, perhaps, because I wanted to just say, look, it's not always like this, you know. This is not what the relationship between a person and a bird has to be. It can be a more gentle and, and more loving thing. Yeah. Sorry, I went on a bit there. No, you didn't <laughs> at all. It's completely fascinating, but I'm trying to figure out, because you also, in, in, the, in your relationship with Mabel, the hilariously named Mabel, because they usually called things like Jezebel, historically. Well, yeah, yeah. If you're a falconer, you, you're supposed to never give your hawk a, a ferocious name. If you call it killer or you know, spitfire or something, it's bound to just sit on a fence post and squeak at you. You, know, you call them things like Mabel and Fluffy, and then they, they obviously turn out to be these extraordinary flying sort of things. So yeah, Mabel, uh, but it comes from the Latin amabilis, so lovable. So I was hoping she'd be lovable. <laughs> and she was. The, um, 
But you, but but there's something about your. I mean, if 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 Th White was exploring in some unconscious way his own sort of psychosexual world via the hawk. I mean, you are clearly also uh, there is some process yeah. between you and the hawk that's yes. about your emotional world. Uh, can you give absolutely? Us a sense of and it? it's it was. Basically, the, the, the whole arc of the book is about what I was doing there. I, I was trying not to be me anymore. I, di I was in a world I didn't recognize. Uh, my dad and I were very, very close friends. It was a very sudden death. And I saw in the goshawk all the things that I was feeling but didn't want to feel myself. So I sort of felt them through the goshawk. So she was, you know, full of rage. She was um, kind of very inhuman, she was completely self-possessed and solitary, all these things, and she, and she didn't feel grief, obviously. So by, by, it's, it's an incredibly emotionally charged experience to train a hawk. And if you, you have to watch them very, very carefully to work out what they're thinking and how you should respond. And this strange alchemy happens in which you sort of end up feeling a bit like the hawk. Um, and there's a, there's a sense in which training Mabel was a way of escaping myself and becoming a hawk. And as the days went by and I started to sort of um, fly her to the fist and later on I was watching her hunt like a wild hawk, I really did s sort of feel that I was seeing the world through very alien eyes. And it was a great, great, very deep distraction, yeah. But a quite a dangerous a sort one. Sort of externalization yeah. in a way. Yes. Or a, yeah. yeah. Or an animal, or a sort of shamanic transference. I mean, there is this sort of, you know, it's a very deeply embedded mythical trope, isn't it? The it idea is. of animal transformation and, and TH in the sword and the stone, TH White has his Arthur his the wart, Arthur transform into um, into a hawk and yes. undergo this appalling experience being terrified by a goshawk as mm. well. Lessons it? in life by, by turning yourself in seeing through other eyes. So and I guess yeah, that is and if you look at again sort of uh, traditions right across sort of Central Asia and into, into North America and there is a sense that the hawk is this, this messenger between two worlds, between the world of the living and the dead. And again, I think unconsciously that was partly what, what was happening there. Mm. Um, it sounds very, not, not, not grand, but it sounds like a sort of huge conceit, but at the time I didn't think about any of this. I just wanted to fly the hawk and be with the hawk. So, yeah. I wonder if you could read us the bit where you go outside with Mabel. <laughs> yes. So I'm wandering around the streets taming her and inuring her to people. Um, and this would have been absolutely unremarkable in the, in the 17th century, but uh, obviously in, in the 21st century in Cambridge, I was a little bit eccentric. So I was sort of wandering around with this bloody great hawk on my fist. Um, and people were kind of doing that wonderful thing where they sort of well, just won't go near her. She's obviously a little odd. <laughs> it is bright after heavy rain and the, the crowds of closing time have gone. On this second expedition from the house, Mabel grips the glove more tightly than ever. She's tense. She looks smaller and feels heavier in this mood, as if fear had a weight to it, as if pewter had been poured into her long and airy bones. The raindrop marks on her tight feathered front run together into long lines like those around a downturned mouth. She picks fitfully at the food, but mostly she stares, taut with reserve about her. She follows bicycles with her eyes. She hunches, ready to spring when people come too close. Children alarm her. She's unsure about dogs. Big dogs, that is. Small dogs fascinate her for other reasons. <laughs> After 10 minutes of haunted apprehension, the goshawk decides she's not going to be eaten or beaten to death by any of these things. She rouses her feathers and begins to eat. Cars and buses rattle fumily past, and when the food is gone, she stands staring at the strange world around her. So do I. I've been with the hawk so long, just her and me, that I'm seeing my city through her eyes. She watches a woman throwing a ball to her dog on the grass, and I watch too, as baffled by what she's doing as the hawk is. I stare at traffic lights before I remember what they are. Bi bicycles are spinning mysteries of glittering metal. The buses going past are, are walls with wheels. What's salient to the hawk in the city is not what is salient to man. The things she sees are uninteresting to her, irrelevant, until there's a clatter of wings. We both look up. There's a pigeon, a wood pigeon, sailing down to roost in a lime tree above us. Time slows. The air thickens and the hawk is transformed. It's as if all her weapon systems were suddenly engaged. Red crosshairs, she stands on her toes and cranes her neck. This flight path, this thing, she thinks, this is fascinating. Some part of the hawk's young brain has just worked something out. 
and it has everything to do with death. <laughs> Thank you. D where did you see your, you know, in, in terms of genre and all those fancy words, I mean, did you see yourself as um, you know, falling into a kind of pattern of nature writing or positioning yourself? And I mean, how, how, how did, you know, it's, generically it's quite interesting because it's literary biography, it's memoir, it's nature writing. The nature writing is very unpastoral. I mean, this is a world where, you know, clods of clay stick to your boots and there are bomb craters in the woods. I mean, and, and there's swearing and brand names as too, which is not... not yes, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not some sort of antediluvian sort of pastoral, you know, bliss. Yeah. So, wait, I mean, can you talk about... Yeah. That, that, well, that? I don't know. I, I, I grew up on a lot of nature-type writing books. Uh, when, you know, when you read them, you, you felt that the author knew everything. And that voice I loved as a child. Um, but slowly I started to sort of see that there's, there's sort of problems with that, that sort of that all-seeing eye. And um, also grief really does shatter narratives. And, and what, I, what I try to do in this book is, is to make it a little bit more, what's, what's the term of art? I think reflexive, a little bit like anthropologists have been doing for many, many years. And that is, you, if you put yourself in the, in, the, in the story, then you can kind of show the underpinnings of our understanding of, or our love of, or our, of, of natural landscapes. And I sort of thought that was important. And also, I wanted, to, I wanted to have more voices than just mine in the book, because, you know, I'm boring, really. Um, so I've got T.H. White's imagined voice, and I've sort of got the Hawke's sort of imagined voice, and I've got me. And when the book starts, you've got, you've got a, I'm sorry, it's, it's all sort of very stylistic stuff. But when, it, when the book starts, there's one chapter which is nature writing, kind of straightforward. And there's another chapter which is memoir, straightforward. And then there's another chapter which is about T.H. White, quite straightforward. And then as the book goes on, I try to kind of, get these bits to talk to each other and get more and more confused and, and complicated. And, I, and I, I just wanted that idea of it being full of, full of hybridity, full of different, different sorts of um, ways of looking at the world and, and our place in it. So that, that was what I was trying to do. I, I hope it works. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Um, and then you get to a point where after this, this, this kind of very slow and steady and patient and frustrating and lonely task with Mabel, you get her to the point where you're able to hunt with her outside. This is a very sort of primal and uh, actually primal is a, a difficult word actually. Maybe I should stay clear of it. But you become quite ferocious. I become horribly feral. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and obviously people ask me about this. You know, some people are saying, you know, were you trying to destroy the world one piece at a time by catching rabbits? And I'm like, no. You know, were the rabbits you? No. Um, I wanted. I wanted to be with the hawk. I wanted to experience the hawk's flight. I wanted to see the hawk do all the things that wild hawks do. And I like falconry for that. You know, it's, the, the bird is completely free. It could just disappear at any time. And of course, what goshawks do is, is hunt. That's, you know, and I say in the book, you know, keeping a goshawk, not letting it hunt, is a bit like keeping a child and saying you're not allowed to play. You know, that's, that's kind of what they are. So I was watching this hawk hunting rabbits um, and pheasants, which was a very intense experience. And in the wild, goshawks will catch things and then they just start eating. Um, it's quite grim. Because obviously for a, for a goshawk, it doesn't really matter whether the rabbit suffers or not, it just wants lunch. But I had to run in there and dispatch the poor thing instantly to stop it from having any suffering. And this was a very sobering and incredibly, uh, un not uncomfortable, just, just made me feel a great sense of accountability and responsibility. I mean, we, you know, I, I eat meat, but I, I don't see animals die. And suddenly I, I, I was seeing them die in front of me and it, and it brought me very close to this sense of, you know, of, of one's place and, again, one's responsibility in the world. Mm. But also it was incredibly exciting in a very, very deep sense to just be with the hawk and watch it do its thing. Mm. Yeah. Could you read for us? Yes. Don't worry, there's, there's no death in this bit. No cruelty to animals. No cruelty book. to animals, <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, I just broke the spine and just wincing. I think this is my reading copy. So this is the first time I, I actually take Mabel out with the express purpose of letting her fly as she would in the world to, to, to chase things. And I'd just been to my mum's house and it was a very difficult and dark thing to do because of course it wasn't my dad's house anymore and I was really deeply grief-stricken at this point. Um, and later that afternoon, I walked with Mabel up a narrow lane to a nearby farm. I'd had permission to fly my hawks there years ago. Did I still? Probably not. I didn't care. There was something splendid in the thought that what I was doing was surreptitious underhand and possibly slightly criminal. 
I raised my binoculars and scanned the fields. No tractors, no farm workers, no dog walkers, no one out for an evening stroll. And so off we crept, Mabel and I, to the top wood where the rabbits used to be. We sneaked around the corner of a blackthorn thicket. And there, about 30 yards away, a little way out from the margin of the wood, three of them in silhouette, ears glowing backlit by the sun, crouching to feed. And next to them, a cock pheasant, ankling his way slowly past. Grief had spurred me to fly the hawk, but now my grief was gone. Everything was gone except this quiet sylvan scene into which I intended to let slip havoc and murder. I stalked around the edge of the wood, crouching low, holding my breath. My attention was microscopically fierce. I'd become a thing of eyes and will alone. Mabel held her wings out from her sides, her head snaking, reptilian eyes glowing. It felt like I was holding the bastard offspring of a flaming torch and an assault rifle. Soft grass underfoot. One hand out to steady myself, we picked our way around to the final corner. And then I slowly extended my gloved fist out from the screen of brush. The hawk left the fist with the recall of a 303 rifle. I stepped out to watch, saw a chain of events so fast they snapped into a comic strip. Frame, frame, frame. Frame one, goshawk spluttering from the fist in bars and pinions and talons. Frame two, goshawk low to the ground, grass streaking on, along under her. Chocolate wings beating strongly, hump-backed. Frame three, rabbits running. Frame four, the pheasant too, crouching and running into the woods' safe margin. But it wasn't safe. Split-second, ink-starred decisions in the hawk's tactical computer. She slewed round slingshot-style heel bows, soaking up g-force like a sponge, closed her wings and was gone, sucked into the black hole of the wood beneath a low-hanging larch branch. Everything disappeared. No rabbits, no pheasant, no hawk. Just a black hole in the wood's edge. It had gone very quiet. So I run into the wood. She's gone. I can't see her anywhere. Sorry, this, I'm going on, but there's a bit... <laughs> I'm breaking through brambles and I'm like, where's my hawk, where's my hawk? She came running out from a tangle of thorn bushes, capping a huge warren, came at a run, barrel-chested, and flung herself up at my fist. Everything apart from her yellow-tinted sear and feet was black and white. Black thorn, black needles, the hawk's white chest, black teardrop feathers, black talons, black nose, white tailings of chalk from where the rabbits had dug. When she came back to my fist, she had chalk mud on all her toes. It covered my glove as she ate, made small white marks like the letters of half-forgotten words that as she ate, were smeared and erased and written all over again. Well, yeah, it was quite exciting. Addictive, I think, was what it was. Oh, yes, the drug, the drug. <laughs> it did feel like that. It really did feel like, you know, that was... I, I, I'd gone out of myself so completely at that point that all I wanted to do was do that again. You know, I didn't feel anything except through looking through the hawk's eyes. Sorry, over that. Um, we hinted earlier that uh, one thing that we were, you know, we'd been talking about between ourselves earlier was um, gender. You know, in that way that women do when they're together. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> no, exactly. That's why I was being ironic, actually. But the um, the the notion being that um, you know, it, it, well, actually, not traditionally in a long. I mean, one sees wonderful kind of tapestries and illuminated manuscripts of wonderful medieval ladies with peregrines on their mm. hands. But mm. but in 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 the in the world of the twentieth century literature about hawking, um, uh, falconry rather, it, it's it tends very, to be very, very male and yeah. very masculine, yeah. and um, and there is a kind of curious relationship between those men and these hawks who are somehow feminized. So, uh, can you talk about that and how you mm. reconciled yourself to it? There's also a kind of curious moment where um, you're patronized by a friend's husband in the book. They're no longer together. She read the book and she's like, I love that you got him like that. Um, so yeah, so he, he, he said, he, he, I, he shall remain nameless, obviously. Um, he said, well, I said to him, I'm really surprised, you know, in, my, in T.H. White's book, there was this great big battle between White and the Goshawk, and the Goshawk was terribly savage and violent, and they kind of fought. But at this point, my Goshawk was being like a kitten. She was playing with paper balls. I'd throw her paper balls, and she'd catch them in her beak and throw them back to me. And I said, you know, it's a great surprise to him. I said, you know, I, I didn't expect this at all. And he said, well, of course you get on. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you know, you're both female. And I was like, it's a, it's a hawk. <laughs> like, so yeah, it made me think about how goshawks had been perceived in falconry books. I, I pulled up all my books out from, you know, I got some lots going right back to sort of reprints of sort of uh, 16th century works, and I looked through them all. And all the Victorian ones talked about goshawks in this incredibly familiar way. Um, they said, 
goshawks hooks are sulky. They're, they're very hard, they're not very biddable. They'll drive you up the wall. You want to wring their neck. They never do what you ask. They'll go off and sulk for hours up, you know, and, 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 uh, and I thought, this just sounds like people talking about hormonal women, doesn't it, really? And this strange way in which goshawks was perceived of as being foreign and other and nothing like, you know, the sort of steady peregrines of, of, of grouse moors. You know, they're, they're weird birds. You call them things like Hitler and Mrs. Glass. You know, they're not, they're not to be trusted. So there's this weird sense in which the irrationality of goshawks is, is irredeemably tied up with them being seen as sort of female. And I think that's partly what, what, what attracted white to them. But if you go back to the 16th century and 17th century, it's a completely different kettle of hawks. Um, <laughs> Falcon has then talked about their hawks as being uh, shy and um, they, that they didn't uh, respond particularly well to rough treatment and that you just had to basically love them. And they use the word absolutely, you, know, you have to love your hawk. And if you love your hawk enough, she will love you back. And then you will have a partnership. And they talk about the hawks as, as friends, companions, and playfellows. And I thought, my God, this is, this is what, this is, this is better. You know, I, I kind of, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that women are better off in early modern England, but, it, but, but certainly that particular relationship seemed much more healthy. So yes, I, I kind of battled through falconry when I was young, when, it was still caught up in that 19th century, extremely masculine sporting kind of identity. And I, um, when I realized it much later that the re one of the reasons I, didn't, I hadn't flown a goshawk was partly because everything had sort of told me that I shouldn't, that they were boys' birds. Um, and when I told my friend Stuart that I played with my goshawk and threw it paper balls, he said to me, what? You, you don't play with goshawks. You use them to kill things. And I said, well, maybe no one's ever, no one's ever tried to play with goshawks, you know. So goshawks are much bigger than the, 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 the sorts of meanings that, that, that I think they've been given. And that's, uh, I think, one of the lessons that I learned from the hawk and I hope is in, in the book. Is there any escape from the project? I mean, whenever one has a relationship with an animal, one projects human characteristics onto it, yes. perhaps. I mean, is there, I mean, how do you negotiate that? I mean, it's not a... It's not a human thing. It can't have human characteristics. And yes, one is a human, and so one relates to it humanly. I mean, do, how do you sort of deal with oh, that? I think one, one, of the, I mean, one of the themes of the book, I, I hope, is that it's, it's about the lure of trying to put yourself in other minds and the difficulty of doing so. And one of the minds is T.H. White, and one of the minds is, is the hawk. And in some ways, I think I understand the hawk better than I understand White. Um, but I think, I think yes, you, you give the hawk meanings, and then you, you sort of relate or re respond to those meanings that you've given the hawk. And w one, of the, one of the ways in which the book, uh, I hope, there comes a point towards the end of the book where I realise that I love the hawk, I treasure the hawk really because she's not human. And I'd used her as a mirror of my grief, which was I think a very dangerous thing for me and for her. Um, I, I just wanted her to be, to feel all those things that I couldn't feel, I didn't want to feel. Uh, and I slowly got quite depressed as the book goes on. Not, not because I was, I don't think I was, I just cut myself off so much from human society and I was so deeply uh, trying to push away that, all the things I was feeling about my dad's death, um, that the hawk became this, yes, this kind of, it wasn't, you know, where was the hawk, you know, it was all about me and it was a great moment of realisation in the book that I'd really done her a great injustice by this. When did the book come into this equation? I mean, there you are in real life, <laughs> with lived experience. Yeah. Um, trying to, uh, immersed in this appalling grief and immersed in this extraordinary relationship and that at some point you decide to write about it. How, how did that happen? Well, I, I guess, I'd all, I, mean, I, say, I think I said, a, I think I might have said a, uh, earlier about the fact that I always thought it would be nice one day to write a book that was not mm. like T.H. White's. Um, but that's not why I wrote this book. Initially I was writing after my father died. I think a lot of people write after they've suffered losses there's a sense in which you, you sort of try and stitch together the world or write a new one into existence. And I was sort of doing that, but that world had a hawk in it. So I was sort of writing throughout. Um, and slowly it, I, I started to realize towards the end of that year that there was a story here that, that was about not just me and not just goshawks, but about grief and about life and about all sorts of things. And I thought, well, let's give it a go. Um, and, I, and I did. Okay. A sort of stitching back together yeah. of this fractured mm. existence. Yeah. Well. I wonder if we could just have one last reading yeah, and absolutely. then immediately after that, please have your questions. Questions, questions. Um, this is just uh, right towards the end of the book where I've realised that I'm not a hawk, thank goodness. Uh, I'm also a lot happier. 
and uh, I started to sort of love the world again in a way that I hadn't for a while. Um, and I've been thinking quite seriously about history and remembering. And I'm back at my mum's house again, and I'm flying Mabel in the same place that you heard a little bit earlier. And she, <laughs> she keeps looking through the trees into a place I'm not supposed to be. And I think, I'm going to go and see what's there. So I, I step over this sort of barbed wire fence, ruining another pair of trousers with her. And, and, and we, uh, we look out across this scene. I'm standing on the far side of my familiar hedge, looking at this terra incognita, which is the great grand 20th century conjuration of our mythical English past. It's, it's wonderful chalk downland. I walk out of the cover crop to where the thin stony soil is exposed, so thick with chalk it's like white paste, hair roots and flints spotted with rain, tiny buttons of stone in impasto. The land falls away at my feet into a dry valley, a basin the size of a village, one beech copse hanging grey from its left-hand slope. It is a field of a million tiny tillers, little shoots of wheat. They give the chalky earth a furry tint, like algae on a cliff face. Even in this dark, watery light, the valley shines palely, and I see what Mabel has seen. About a hundred yards in front of us, crouched on its form is a big brown hair, black-tipped ears laid to its ginger back. But there's more, much more here. Down at the bottom of the valley, where the river would be if were there water, is a herd of 30 fallow deer. They're the color of moleskin on their backs, shading to pale gray underneath. They're tight clustered, quivering with indecision. They're watching me, 30 upraised heads. This herd is delicate and powerful, and it is waiting to see what I will do. I can't resist the urge that takes hold of me then. I hold on to Mabel, who is watching them too, and like a woman possessed, walk towards them with that strange disconnect between head and feet you feel when walking downhill. I'm technically trespassing, but I can't help it. I want to interact with them in some way. I want to get closer. And as I do, the pressure of my impending arrival pushes single deer off to the right. And they walk, then canter in a long line along the bottom of the valley and up to the wood at the far edge of the field, a good half mile away. They're bewitching. Mabel watches them. She's ignoring the hair. The deer in procession resemble charcoal cave paintings rendered manifest arts, magic, working backwards. The chalk behind them, bone. And now the hare runs too. The hare runs in the opposite direction to the deer. The animals run and the landscape seems then to be parting in front of me. Deer one way, hare the other, and now they're quite gone. The hare to the field margin at the top of the hill to my left, the deer into the wood at the top of the hill to my right. There is nothing before me now but wind and chalk and wheat, nothing. The hawk rouses again and begins to preen her covert feathers. The running deer and the running hare. Legacies of trade and invasion, farming, hunting, settlement. Hares were introduced, it's thought, by the Romans. Fallow deer certainly were. Pheasants, too, brought in their burnished hordes from Asia Minor. The partridges possessing this ground were originally from France, and the ones I see here were hatched in game farm forced air incubators. The squirrel on the sweet chestnut trees? North America. Rabbits? Medieval introductions. Felt? meat, fur, feather from all corners, but possessing the ground just the same. Now we do have a roving microphone and do oh, we have any hands It's in like the question air? time, this is excellent. Yes. The, Hello. There's certainly a hand at the front. There's, 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 well, the artistic director of the festival would like to ask a question. Are we going to let him? Yes, go on, hand it over. Just a quick one. Um, I, I thought, considering this was essentially a description of grief, uh, depression, and rage, it was a, an oddly life-affirming book. But one of the things that troubled me about it was that as you got closer and closer to the hawk, your friends got more and more annoying to you. And I worried about you that perhaps having written this book and committed that into the book, that you might have some sort of permanent distancing from your mother no. and your friends. How are you with your mates? <laughs> <laughs> All the mates I had before the book I still have. Um, or before the, 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 my father's death. Um, there, it is true though, Nick. I mean, this is one thing that I, I, I do really regret. People sort of sometimes say to me the other day, do you, know, do you have any regrets about that year? You did some very strange things with you know, having that hawk. And I said, well, you know, the one thing that I do really really still get very sad about is that I was I think I neglected my mother and brother at the time you know I, I was so desperately keen to escape and run away and hide and be something else that I think I, 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 I just wasn't there enough for them 
and you know they say oh it's fine but I, I looking back I, my heart still hurts a little bit for that um, I wish I'd, I'd been a better a better member of the family really um, but apart from that no I'm, I'm, I'm still very good friends with, with, with my friends in the book so did they I mean this is I mean did the writing of the book did the act of writing affect you positive I mean there's a kind of relationship between emotion and writing you don't you know your tears don't necessarily stain the page as you type, but uh, how, how does how does that relate to the the lived experience of the grief and the actually writing the book and then the book being finished? I mean, yeah. is it all part of a process? Or? It was very strange things. I mean, it took me quite a few years to get to the point where I could write the book. It was such a raw time and, and, and quite difficult time that I needed that distance, I think, to, to do that. Um, but as the book went on, it, it became very obvious that although all this, these things happened, and, and I think something really strange happens to memory after loss, I remember all that year so, so brightly. I didn't even really need to look at, look at the things I'd written at the time. But I did sort of become a character in the book as I wrote it, and I could feel the echoes of very big emotions from that time. But I, I, there was a really weird combination of being very honest and being very truthful, but yet, because I was a character in the book, there was enough distance to be able to sort of set myself down um, and take that time and make it make it whole, make it make it a, a complete thing. And I think it probably was a therapeutic thing to write. Um, yeah. That's what your mum said at your book launch. Is that what she said? Yeah. Oh, that's why I felt her. I was able to ask. <laughs> she was great. You know, uh, she got asked, "Are you proud of your daughter?" And she said, "No." <laughs> she said she was always going to write something. Like you know, bless her. There's a question at the front. If you're still, uh, can you wait for the microphone? Oh, sorry. My mum's m lovely, by the way. That sounded like I was sort of dissing her. I really wasn't. She's wonderful. Um, obviously, your father um, and his death were the catalyst for the book. Do you describe your father in the book and your relationship with him? Because we, we haven't had any mm. uh, descriptions. I haven't read the book, sadly, but I will. It's a, a really, really excellent question. Um, someone said to me that uh, well, in one of the reviews, I shouldn't really talk about reviews. It sounds like I'm being kind of... But one of the reasons it's very interesting in this book because you hear a lot about T.H. White, but you hear a little bit less about that the biography of my father is less successful. And I'm sort of thinking, well, the book talks about my father and my relationship to him, but it's not a biography of my father. That's a, it would be a very different book. So um, I, t I talk about him quite a lot in the book. Um, he was a press photographer, and we shared a way, I think, of looking at the world, of being uh, amazed and delighted by things that happened by, by sort of comets and stars and aeroplanes and birds. So we shared an eye. And the book is a little bit about how the lineages of, of looking at the world are kind of uh, are shaped by one's earliest upbringings and earliest experiences. Um, but I, I, I hope I do talk about him enough to, to get a sense of, of, of the man. He was a, uh, a, a wonderful chap. Um, and I know I sort of sound like I hate geography, but he was a really splendid chap. He was a, a press photographer who, uh, whose family came from North Uist. Um, and grew up in London and uh, decided aged, you know, timely that he, that he wanted to do that um, and ended up working uh, in Fleet Street all his life um, and yet was an incredibly sort of, you know, you have this impression of a press photographer as being this kind of, you know, roistering, you know, hard drinking, but he was an incredibly quiet man who collected books, um, so he was a very interesting kind of character and I, I hope that comes across in the book. There's a question uh, here in the one, two, three, fourth row. I finished reading your book a couple of days ago. And oh. I thought it was terrific. Thank you. The writing is just fantastic. Uh, you go a lot into the psychology of the T.H. White, and I also loved his book when I first read it years, years ago, and have loved Birds of Prey all my life, like you have. Um, but I have an image of them as being uh, emblematic of wild things. Mm. And when I go out and you see a hawk or a falcon, it's just a magical moment. As far as the psychology of falconers is concerned, how do you reconcile the image of a falcon or a hawk wild in the sky with a falcon on the wrist wearing a hood sometimes with a uh, leashed, tied to a perch, um, stuck in an aviary for long periods of time also. 
So I, in my mind, you've got the image of the wild hawk on one extreme and the tame, trained hawk on mm. the other. Mm. And do you have, feel any difficulty or difficulty in re reconciling those two extremes? I, I think... Uh, I sort think of domination right. of the hawk by you. Right. I mean, I think that's a very, very interesting question, and it plays with some very, very big, uh, very big things about how we relate to to, to nature. So certainly, um, I think that the. I hope this doesn't sound as if I'm criticising you. I'm not in any sense. I think it's an extremely uh, sensible and, and important question. For most people in Britain, hawks represent wildness. They represent rarity, and they represent a sort of distanced. Uh, Sort of grand concepts of, of, of as I say, of, 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 um, of ferocity, wildness, and, 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 and rarity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think those are very important. But I also uh, used to do a lot of um, school visits when I was working in falconry seriously, and I've had letters since from small children who grew up, who I remember staring at birds of prey close up with a look in their eyes that they would never, I think, uh, have had if they'd seen a bird at a great distance or on a screen. There's something about the very close proximity of a bird of prey which energizes people's love and wonderment. And a lot of those kids went on to work in conservation. So that's one, one aspect of it. There's a sense in which I, I'm a great, I have a great worry about the policing of boundaries between the human world and the natural world to the extent that wild animals, we're not really allowed to interact with them anymore. They're, they're distanced, they're out there. And they become less important to us. Um, and I, I think that falcon is one of the very few ways in which one can interact with wild animals, which, if it's done correctly, is, I think, very enlightened way of doing it. So I, um, my goshawk, for example, you know, in the wild, goshawks will sit in trees, they'll loaf, they'll go and catch something, they'll loaf again, they'll preen, they'll bathe, and they'll... My goshawk, I was flying for, for hours every day. Um, and the only difference, I think, between my, her life and a wild goshawk was that she, she slept in my house. Um, but I think that's, that's what I see falconry as, as being, rather than certain other kinds of falconry. So obviously, there are bad people, bad falconers, as, as there are bad parents. Um, but I, I think the sense that there's a huge divide between the life of a wild hawk and a, a, a captive hawk I don't think it's as, it's quite as wide as, as one might as one might think. That's that. Sorry, that's my really interesting question. Mm. There's a hand at the f in the front row. Well, first of all, I'm longing to read your book and and, and, and what you said, um, the readings we've had already, the poetry. Is this right way around? Okay, the the, the poetry has been sensational. What I'm actually going to ask you is something rather different. You talked about Horus and you talked about the ethereal nature of of a, the soaring bird. Mm. But the one thing about a, about a goshawk, it's not a soaring bird at all. It's a, it's a short, sharp, shock animal. Mm. I mean, a, a, a creature. It's a yeoman's hawk. It's a killing machine. Um, and it's not, in fact, like a peregrine, um, which is a soaring bird. Now, they say, therefore, your relationship between uh, heaven and your father seems to be rather strange, having a, a goshawk. Why didn't you, in fact, have a peregrine at the time? And I know you're about to have a merlin. So would you like to talk about <laughs> long-winged rather than short-winged So this is wonderful. There's an enormous sort of and a very long-standing kind of class divide between the two sorts of birds of prey that are used in falconry. So you have these long-winged falcons, the sort of very aerial birds. I've got thousands of feet. You need a lot of land to fly them. And then you have the lowly ostringer, which is a wonderful French term for people who fly goshawks and sparrowhawks, and that's what I was doing. And if you go back to the 14th century, you have, you have people sort of saying, you know, um, falconers sort of, sort of saying that if you want to sort of swear at someone, you call them an ostringer. You know, that ostringers are humpbacked and, and, and they swear a lot and you can't have them in polite company. So there's this huge, huge class divide between, between the two. Um, I'd flown falcons for many years because I loved their, their aerial uh, nature. I loved the sense that they you know, that you would go out with a, with a bird of prey, let it go, it would go off and do its thing, and then it would just decide to come back. It's that sense of coming back that is very, uh, it's a very emotional, it's almost like a sort of reinscribing of the contract between you and the world, really, a hawk coming back to your fist, because of course they could just fly off at any point. But they were, I think, yes, absolutely, with the goshawk, I think my, I mean, people talk about the five stages of grief as involving a lot of rage 
And I think that that's probably why I, I fled to the Goths, because there were things I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to feel full of rage and anger and murderousness. But the goshawk could feel those things for me, and I think that's why. And then, of course, I was, I was stymied. You know, I had this goshawk that was absolutely adorable, would come and kind of preen my hair and, and snuggle up to me while we watched television. And I was thinking, this isn't quite what I expected, you know. So, <laughs> and I think that was a big lesson, that, you know, that we, we see these birds as, as ferocious killers, but actually they are much, much more than that. So it was an excellent question. Thank you. There was a question here, um, if you could, and then... Yes, I need to read your book. Um, oh, thank you. So you mentioned that uh, there was a history of um, falconry or um, going back four, four and a half thousand years. Four thousand years about, yeah. Do you, is that just evidence-based or is there... Uh, it, it just seems to me that it, it's much more... Everything you've said suggests it's a really hard-wired thing, in, if that's the correct term. Um, could it have gone much further back into our history? Yes, absolutely. And uh, there are all sorts of theories as to where and when it arose. Each culture tends to have its own creation story for falconry. Um, so in British falconers tended to think in the 19th century, or in the, uh, sorry, in the early modern times, that it, was, it, was, uh, it came from Troy. Um, and you know, it's very, very fascinating. I think, I hesitate to say hardwired, but I think there's something about that um, the robustness of the mythical, religious and practical use of birds of prey that is so surprisingly um, apparent across, uh, across cultures. I, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a baffling thought. So the, the, the evidence for 4,000 years ago comes from Anatolian um, uh, drawings of, of people holding goshawks with, with a rabbit in, it's, it's kind of obvious really, you've got a goshawk in one hand and a rabbit in the other. But of course what we don't know is how falconry at that point was tied up with, with spiritual or religious practice. Um, and there are, there, is, uh, there are theories that there was a huge cult of birds of prey as, as uh, create, creator gods like Horus right across Central Asia in, in, in prehistory. And that was the initial thing that sort of spread across across from there but of course this these theories are all you know no, no one really knows but it's a fascinating one you know lot, lots of um lots of lots of creator gods um particularly associated with the sun and fire and creation all seem to have falcon heads or hawk heads so yeah there's someone for the comp sort of comparative uh, religion out there if anyone wants to get in get into that one we need to we need some answers um, <laughs> it's fascinating Right, or well, we'll talk afterwards maybe, yeah. I think there's, we've got time for one quick last question. Um, just, uh, just, a, I just think a brief one. <coughs> Thank you. Um, in listening to you, I've not read the book yet, but in listening to you, I couldn't help but invent parallels between you and, um, and the process of training a dog, or in particular a gun dog. Mm. And um, I'm just wondering, as you, as you uh, get to know the bird better, the relationships build. I just wonder the extent to which uh, the, you gain a reward from a mutual respect, but also a need. To what extent do you s get a sense of satisfaction from the from the bird going from a, a wild, entirely wild creature that doesn't know you to one that, in some sense, if not physically, somehow emotionally depends on you? Yes, and it's it's a very fascinating difference from, I mean absolutely there, there is a sense in which you, you do build a very strong relationship with a bird of prey, but because they're not social animals like dogs, you don't feel part of a, part of a pack, or there's not a sort of sense that sociability is slightly different, sociality is different. But with Mabel, I mean certainly um, if, you, if you spend a lot of time with a hawk, if you fly, fly her every day for hours, you, you do s develop these strange bonds uh, of trust and what, what the old 17th century falcons would have called love, you know, that, that, that you know, my hawk would, would, would run into the room and sort of hop onto the sofa and kind of sit by me. Um, and that is, it is really very, very, uh, it's, it, just, you, you, it feels like an honour, I think, is the only way of really putting it. Um, with the proviso that, you know, if, if I, I knew that if I, if I took Mabel out and let her go in Thetford Forest and, and, you know, she'd be fine, she'd hunt for herself and join the wild goshawks there, and she would be wild again in a week. You know, so, so it's always with a goshawk, you always sense you're just dipping the surface of, um, 
of, of wildness, really. I mean, I hate to use the word wildness. It's one of those words that has so many meanings, it becomes almost meaningless. But, um, but the, there's always a sense that she, she could just disappear at any moment, despite those bonds, which was, I think, really useful and interesting, particularly in, in, a sort of, in that bereavement stage that you're, you're constantly testing those bonds. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to leave it there, um, ladies and gentlemen. I really urge you to, I mean, you've had wonderful evidence of how <laughs> what extraordinary this book is, but I really urge you to read it. It is in, so powerful. The sentences spring out of her page with such tension and coiled Thank energy. You, and Thank also you. it's extraordinarily moving. Um, and, you know, it, it has been said of the book, the Financial Times critic said, I doubt if a better book will be published this year. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of very much with that sentiment. It's certainly one of the best books I've read this year, if not the best. And um, buy it. And please join me in thanking Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. For you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.